Hello there, and welcome to episode number two of The Music Plays the Band. I'm your host, Rob Koritz of the Dark Star Orchestra. I'm really glad you all are joining me today, and I hope you are all safe and well. We were finally able to get back out and play a few shows, uh, drive-in style up in the Northeast, uh, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Vermont, and uh, definitely a little different playing to cars or people standing in squares that are spaced out from each other, but I cannot begin to describe how good it felt to play, you know, both to play the music and, and feed our souls and to be able to look out there and see people enjoying it and dancing and, and, and doing it safely for the most part. You know, it's uh, it's been a difficult time for everybody. We want to be playing, and we know you all want to be hearing the music. So uh, it's nice to be able to find a way to do it, even if it's not ideal. You know, I guess it's, uh, at least for uh, a while, it's going to be the new normal. You know, how long is that going to be? We really don't know. Um, I did see that Broadway announced they're not going to have shows until June of 2021, you know, and if that's any indicator, it's still going to be a while before we do it the old school way. So, uh, you know, people are working on finding creative ways to do it. Uh, the drive-in and the, the pod theory of standing in pods spaced out is working. You know, now the weather is going to start to get colder in a lot of parts of the country and that makes that difficult. And I'm sure that the, uh, the promoters and the theaters out there are going to try their best to figure out some safe way to do it. But uh, in the meantime, I'm just glad we've been able to play some shows for y'all and uh, and play some shows for us because, you know, it feels so good for us to get out there and do what we love and, you know, uh, feed our, our creative uh, soul, if you will. So, uh, yeah, so that's what's been going on. Um, got a good episode for you today. I'm really looking forward to it. I am happy to have along for the feature interview the one and only Keller Williams. Uh, Keller's been a staple on the jam band scene since, uh, well, I met him in 1999 out there. And uh, he was certainly influenced by the Grateful Dead, and he has a lot of real interesting things to say. So I'm looking forward to playing that for you a little later. But uh, right now, let's go ahead and get started with the day. The Black Music Moment is sponsored by The Clean Store, brandingandapparel.com, for all your branding and apparel needs. Technology-driven solutions and concierge service for managing programs of all sizes. Uh, the Black Music Moment is our attempt at chronicling the profound influence of black music on the Grateful Dead. This week, we are going to take a moment to honor the Reverend Gary Davis. Davis was born in 1896 in Piedmont, South Carolina, and he became blind when he was an infant. In 1933, he became an ordained minister, and his recording career began in 1935. Uh, in the 1940s, he left South Carolina, and he moved to New York City, where he recorded new, numerous albums. Uh, the folk revival of the 60s really gave his career a boost when he performed at the Newport Folk Festival, and his songs were recorded after that by Peter, Paul, and Mary, Bob Dylan, and, of course, The Grateful Dead. Uh, one of these songs was If I Had My Way, also known as Samson and Delilah. Uh, this particular song, he was not the original recording. Uh, that was done by Blind Willie Johnson. But the song was popularized by Davis, and now since then has been performed by a wide range of artists. Uh, the Dead first performed it in June of 76, and it appeared on the Terrapin Station album in 77. And The Dead actually also performed another Davis song, uh, Death Don't Have No Mercy, 
from 1966 to 70, I believe, and then they brought it back a handful of times in 89 and 90. I'm pretty sure the first time was uh, the Hampton shows where they performed as the, the Warlocks. So here is the Reverend Gary Davis and his recording of If I Had My Way or Samson and Delilah. Sarno Music Solutions Breakdown with Brad Sarno, brought to you by Sarno Music Solutions, producing the finest musical instrument audio gear designed and hand-built in St. Louis, Missouri since 2003, and Blue Jade Audio, St. Louis's primary audio mastering service since 1999. Okay, so I'm back here again today with my friend Brad Sarno. How are you today, pal? I'm doing well, Rap. Thanks for coming back and spending some time with me. Um, The last time we talked, we got into specifics about the EQ and the sound for the kick drum and its relationship to bass guitars. Today, I want to talk about the hi-hats. And the reason is because I learned something new along the way. You know, traditionally, you see hi-hat microphone pointing down at the top symbol on the hi-hats. And then we were lucky enough to have Dan Healy come on a few tours with us. Uh, Dan Healy, the sound guru for the Grateful Dead and a huge influence on Brad and, and myself as well. And he changed our the way we did it. He uh, put it on the outside facing right level with the cymbals, almost like it was catching the air pocket when you would open the cymbals. It was right in the center there. Uh, reasons for that? Your hypothesis on that, maybe? Yeah, I'm a big fan of that Healy hi-hat technique. Um, my recollection is the the general theory behind that and why it works so well is that the the microphone that's on the top head of the snare drum is usually right underneath a hi-hat. And from the side of that mic, it's picking up a lot of the meat and body and uh, uh, thickness of the hi-hat. So the hi-hat mic doesn't need to get the whole hi-hat sound. It just needs to complement that and complete the hi-hat sound by getting the, the real wispy, uh, sizzly, crispy top end of it. 
The part um, that's going to actually like cut through the rest of the mix. Yeah, the part that's the sweet top end that's going to cut through and help uh, define time the way hi-hats do. And um, so that Healy technique where the mic is horizontal, parallel to the floor, right uh, on the edge of the cymbals away from where the snare is, and uh, just a couple of inches. Yeah. Um, and looking right at where the cymbals come together. Um, and what's critical here is you have to put a windscreen on because there is a puff of air that comes in and out every time. Right. So you you right. have to protect the mic for the wind. I'm, I'm pretty uh, sure that ours, I, I, I keep that, my cymbals are so close, it's only about a half inch from the windscreen. Right. You know, but the windscreen's got some space in it before it gets to the mic head. Right. Um, and if you solo up that microphone, it's going to sound a little weird and incomplete. But when you ter- turn on all the mics and listen to the snare drum mic mixed with that, you suddenly have this stunningly accurate and sweet, clear hi-hat tone. It's right really on. easy to mix and cuts through nicely. Uh, it's just a great technique. It's really, it was a game changer for me too. I always enjoy having you on and spending time with you, man. Thank you so much for some more insight today. I uh, look forward to having you back on another episode. Thanks, Rob. Oh, my pleasure, Brad. Take care. Yeah, you take care. Our next segment is sponsored by the Authenticity Academy, offering you online courses and private coaching. If you're feeling stuck or confused about the direction your life is going in or you've lost touch with your authentic self, the Authenticity Academy is here to help. www.authenticity-academy.com So last week we talked uh, with uh, the band here from St. Louis named Jake's Leg, who's been around for 44 years and may well be one of the longest-running Grateful Dead cover bands uh, out there. I can't imagine there's too many that started before 1976. Uh, But there's some other ones that have been around for a long time, and today we're going to talk to uh, a member of one who has been around for over 30 years, and that's down in South Florida, and it's the band Crazy Fingers. And today I'm happy to have uh, their drummer and friend of mine, Pete Lavazzoli. Uh, Some of you might know Pete from his extended time with uh, JGB, and during that he was still always a part of his band Crazy Fingers uh, down down in Florida. So, uh... Uh, it's an interesting discussion, and um, I'm excited for you all to hear it. So here he is, Pete Lavazzoli. All right. Hey, Pete, how are you? Hey, Rob, how are you doing? I am doing great, and I just want to thank you for taking the time to uh, to be with me today. How's everything going in South Florida? Everything's going as well as can be expected. Everybody's hunkering down, uh, hopefully, and we're getting through the pandemic as best we can but the band is still able to play which is very fortunate for us because everybody in the band is here in south florida so we're able to actually do webcasts in a studio and we are able to play some outdoor shows a couple times a week so crazy fingers 30 years i noticed i saw on your uh halloween 1990 was your very first show. I was uh, yeah. I was in London that night watching The Grateful Dead. Oh, that's yeah, that's right. I think I remember you, you saying that you had gone on the Europe 90 tour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're an original member. How many of you are still original members today? Uh, the bass player, Bubba Newton, Charles, Charles, quote, Bubba, unquote, Newton, uh, and myself are the two original 
uh, members. And we had two different guitarists, uh, Al Zielinski and Mike Green. They've both moved on to other projects. And since then, we've gone through a few other guitarists until uh, 27 years ago in 1993, we hired Rich Friedman from New York, who's been with us uh, since then. And also in 1993, we hired our friend Corey Dwyer on keyboards and guitar. Corey, unfortunately, passed from an, from an automobile accident no. a few years ago. Sorry but to hear that. For, he was with us for 21 years. Uh, Rich is still with us going on 27 years now. So, and um, yeah, 30 years, though, for me and for, and for Bubba. So your, your your instrumentation, it's a single drummer, two guitars, bass, and keyboards. Is that correct? Yes. Gotcha. And uh, you, you mentioned that you're playing twice a week now during the pandemic. Pre-pandemic, how often were you all playing? Ooh, boy, I mean, like four times a week, sometimes five. Wow. Um, you know, um, that would, you know, and that would be either with me or with a different drummer because I would be out of town working a lot with other people. Right. But, um, but the Crazy Fingers as a band would be usually playing, you know, maybe four or five nights a week locally around South Florida, whether it's down in Miami or in the Fort Lauderdale Broward area or up in the Palm Beach County area, West Palm Beach, Boca Raton. Um, sometimes getting into some of the other areas and sometimes going around the state. But usually, in the South Florida community, there are enough uh, venues. Of course, this this has also been challenged with the coronavirus of you know different venues. So indoor venues are all uh, still trying to figure out if they're coming back. Right. But yeah, uh, typically we would be playing four to five nights a week. And when you started, like that private party, you were it was Grateful Dead music right from the get go, correct? Yes. Gotcha. When when you all play. You know, there's there's so many different Grateful Dead playing bands around the country, and and everybody kind of has a different twist on it. Um, your your band and you also personally, do you all take a specific approach to interpreting and performing the music? Um, we we intentionally do not take a specific. I love it. Approach. Yeah, right on. Uh, and that's because, um, especially uh, myself and the other original member. Bubba on bass and myself on drums. We both have a long history of collecting tapes and trading tapes going going back. And as a matter of fact, that's when I first met Bubba in the in the late 1980s. We met as uh, fellow deadheads and as, as fellow tape traders, and we we knew a lot of the same tapers, uh, people who would tape shows, people who would trade shows. So we both considered ourselves to be real you know connoisseurs of the different historical phases of the grateful dead and we both um, have large collections and we would both study the history of the band and and even even going week to week let alone month to month and so <clears throat> we decided that we wanted to be open to everything in the catalog of the band from the mid 60s up until the mid 90s we always liked the uh, the early 70s Bill Kreutzmann as the single drummer right. era, because of the mainly because of the flexibility <clears throat> that that affords to the rhythm section within the jams, even within a dark star or within a playing in the band or another one. We like the freedom of that. Yeah, it's much um, much easier to shift gears with just one drummer for sure. On on a regular given Crazy Fingers show, we have no list.
what, the reason why we're able to do that is because we've always put a lot of time into rehearsing the band so that we have this entire catalog up to speed so that at any moment we can draw upon it. I, I want to, I want, if you could, just for a minute or sure. two, tell me about your community down there. You've been doing this for 30 years, and yeah. like most local dead bands, I'm assuming there's people that have been coming out to see you since day one, and people you know that are going to be around. Hey, we're playing in this town. I know so-and-so is going to be there. Can can you tell me a little bit about the, what kind of community you have down there and what you think it is about this music that creates that kind of subculture? Well, um, Bubba and I have always uh, been very thankful and very proud of the fact that we really helped uh, coalesce and galvanize the deadhead community in South Florida. When, when we started the band in 1990, there, there already certainly was a deadhead community. But from, right, from the, from, right from the beginning, really, I would say that through late 1990 into the new year and then into 1991, we very quickly discovered that there was this large community of deadheads that had been looking for something they had been looking for somewhere to go. They had been looking for a band to support and a community and a social, you know, a shakedown. They've been looking for a shakedown. They've been looking for that. And so that uh, very quickly kind of formed around us and it it just, you know, built. I mean, I mean, the community was there, but it was, everybody was kind of doing their own thing. And, you know, with, with a band like Dark Star Orchestra and you're on the road and you're playing nationwide, then that gives people around the country a focal point. When you have a band that is centered in one particular metropolis, whether it's South Florida, whether it's Philadelphia, whether it's, you know, Boston, Chicago or whatever, um, then that band and that having that kind of a regular level of activity and a regular presence in that one metropolis it gives that deadhead community uh, a focal point and that's what happened for us and it's been that way for 30 years you know we have people that have been seeing us since the beginning and then we have people that have been that have just jumped on in the past few years and um and it's a it's a beautiful way that that intermingles you know the old timers and the newcomers and um and it's something that has really sustained us you know we have some very old friends who go back to the beginning and we have a lot of new friends and but it 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 does make a difference when there is a consistency of activity in one town and sure. in one and I I keep using the word metropolis because again you know in South Florida uh, you have Miami, Fort Lauderdale, West Palm Beach, but you have kind of a tri-county area it's right. like in New York. You know. But those so, people knowing that, hey, it's Thursday night, I know I can go here and hear Crazy Fingers and hang with these people. Absolutely. Right. That's huge. I mean, yeah. that's, it, I mean it's, that's huge. It's not, it's not only as a huge for the band, it, but it's very significant in giving the people uh, a, 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 a schedule, a blueprint. I mean, people... People begin to base their social lives and their activity around that. I love it. I love it. I, I can't thank you enough, my friend, for just taking a few minutes out of your day. Oh, thank you, Rob. I, I, I sure you're one of my good buddies, man. I sure love you a whole lot, and Dino, and all the guys in DSO, and uh, and it's a privilege. Oh, thank you so much, man. Stay safe down there. Enjoy these outdoor shows, and uh, and we will definitely speak again. That sounds great, my man. All right, thank you. All right.
Take care. If you like what you're hearing today, please consider becoming a monthly subscriber through Patreon for access to bonus content, a look behind the scenes, links to related topics, and more ways to further engage with me and support the podcast. Please visit www.patreon.com forward slash the music plays and subscribe today. For our feature interview today, I am happy to have Keller Williams as my guest. Uh, many of you are familiar with Keller from the jam band scene in one form or another, I'm sure. I'm a big fan, and the only way I can describe Keller is as a chameleon. He's so versatile, he has so many different projects that he's done over the years. You know, there's the, the solo loop thing, which kind of put him on the map. And, and since then, he's touched on just about every genre of music with a different group. You know, he's done the, the funk and R&B thing with More Than a Little, and the bluegrass with Grateful Grass or Pettygrass or Keller and the Keels straight-out fusion jamming with the quattro, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, he's so creative, and it seems to me he can do anything, and he has a, a knack for surrounding himself with excellent players. Uh, he's quite the songwriter as well. He's released, I think, 24 albums since 1994, and, I mean, that's a lot of music. Uh, and, you know, there's, a, there's no doubt that the Dead have had a great influence on him. He, he often performs Dead tunes in his live shows, but he also he has the ability to give him a really unique treatment, and... Uh, just, just make them a little different, you know? So uh, I'm very grateful that he was willing to spend some time with me today. He's always a pleasure to talk to, and he's entertaining. Uh, so here is Mr. Keller Williams. Okay, so I am here with my friend Keller Williams. How are you today, sir? Hi, Rob. I'm doing great, thank you. It's a beautiful day in Virginia. Yeah, man. Thank you for taking the time out of your beautiful day. Um, mm. So what's been going on during this uh, quarantine? I know, actually, you just played some gigs, didn't you? I did, yeah. I guess um, starting uh, about August, uh, second week in August, uh, I started to play these uh, social distance shows, you know, very, very low capacity type of places. And um, I mean, the, the, the places I was playing, like, for example, the, uh, the Tap Shack in Duck, North Carolina, uh, it holds about 250 outside and they narrowed it down to 100 in, uh, you know, with, uh, no more than a, like a six top, you know, six people at a table right. and uh, everyone's spread out. Everyone kind of has to stay by their table and, uh, you know, wear a mask if they were to venture off, uh, to the bathroom, but it's all table service. So there's no, you know, um, gathering or clusters. And uh, and then that's moved on to, you know, some drive in movie theaters, which is really, really, really interesting. And, yeah, and um, I've been able to uh, to do uh, a farm brewery and there's uh, there's another winery coming up this weekend. I was able to do the, the Washington football team used to have a a, um, a training uh, park in Richmond. And I think they moved everything up to, you know, Landover, but uh, Landover, Maryland. But it used to be this big uh, Washington football team training park. And they did these pods where they, they uh, roped off, you know, uh, these sections for, for people, you know, no more than six to come in. And that was like the first thing to be done like that in Richmond. And uh, it sold like a thousand tickets. It rained like hell, so yeah. it kind of got. It was really, really difficult, but it was uh, it was really, really cool in the sense that, um, you know, the Broadberry uh, 
it's a is a bar in rich or, or, or a music venue in Richmond, and the folks there kind of put this thing together, and uh, that was that was really really interesting. Uh, but now now it's like um, I'm still I'm still you know uh, doing some outside gigs, and uh, and uh, life has has gotten you know a lot better mentally since. Yeah, man. Um, and and a lot of people are saying that with these social distance places. Like I did one up in New Jersey uh, that that was uh, 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 roped off. I think it was the Sunshine Farm, and um, they um, people were saying how you know when you go to a festival and you lay down a blanket, <clears throat> you, know, you think you think that's the uh, that's kind of, and then people just step on it, you know, and and people have always wanted to rope it off, but you would have looked like a total douche, you know. And now nobody's stepping on your blanket. And now no one's stepping on your shit. (laughs) It's, it's been, you know, we've been doing some drive-in stuff too, and it's so different, but God, doesn't it feel good to just play in front Mm. of people again? It does. It really does. And it can only do uh, so much in the basement on the streams and everything. It just feels so good to get out and see people dancing again. That's right. And thank God for those streams. I mean, that really gave me a, um, something to look forward to you know i did these mondays mondays and wednesday nights and right in the basement live from keller selling we did 51 episodes and we have another one coming up on october the 26th i'm not sure when this will air um, uh i'm not sure either but it probably passed october the 26th but i'm sure it was great all right well never mind <laughs> <clears throat> um well i want to talk to you about i got a bunch of questions i'd like to ask you today um but i'm going to go way way back to, to when you're getting started um when when were you first turned on when did you first hear the grateful dead um uh definitely on the radio uh casey jones i think was a big uh like a radio hit uh when i was uh, you know, in my probably 10, 11, 12, you know, and I was definitely into other musics uh, at that point. But I remember being at a summer camp, you know, it was like an overnight summer camp and I had a boom box and I was playing all this silly pop music of the day or whatever. Oh, it was like, you know, kind of like the break dancing thing or whatever. Yeah, man. Uh, <laughs> and then there was there, <laughs> there was some this camp counselor was like, man, that's that's bullshit. You should check this out. Listen to this. This is. It's Grateful Dead. It's on the radio right now. And uh, so that was kind of like Casey Jones was kind of like my first thing. But then later on, you know, I got uh, started playing guitar more and getting into things like um, uh, like R.E.M. And uh, and kind of getting into kind of the uh, the psychedelic or early psychedelic uh, lyrics of like uh, uh, Michael Stipe. Right. And uh, and that kind of led into uh, the the Reckoning album. And that was probably like 1986. And, and you're and already playing guitar at that point? I'm playing guitar. Yeah, I did. I did my first gig at, at 16 and 86 and uh, and wasn't really covering a whole lot of Grateful Dead. Then. It was more like the dude in the corner in the in the restaurant, you know, playing playing covers that really lightly that people can you know right. that's cool rec- recognize but uh it was probably 86 that i got turned on to um reckoning and really just got into that whole album you know as a um acoustic thing you know a, a friend had turned me on to uh you know microphone cassette tapes you know from 
from stadiums and whatnot. And, and it was interesting. It was cool. And it had this certain sound, uh, but I didn't really get it, you know, until, uh, reckoning. And then once I got into reckoning and then I, I really started getting into other albums <clears throat> and then, uh, finding my favorite songs, you know, on live tapes. And then, you know, once I got turned on to like soundboard tapes, you know, so, so that kind of, that kind of took it to a next level. I, I, I always did like the, the, the audience tapes, but if they were like stealth and really like close to the, right. <laughs> close, close to the speakers, you know, those sounded really good. Uh, but uh, it took me a minute to really, attach myself to the to the audience recordings uh but then uh, after reckoning the soundboard recordings kind of took me away so you and i you and i think we're pretty close in age so at this point you're probably what sophomore junior senior in high school when all of this is happening right um yeah yeah i'd probably say i'd, I'd probably say a freshman you know really started getting into guitar and probably the, the sophomore uh the was was when kind of the Grateful Dead kind of entered in for sure. So after that, you go to college, and you went to college in Virginia. Um, mm-hmm. Are you playing in bands, or are you starting to hone your solo skills? What what are you doing musically when you're in college? The idea from the get go was to always play with humans and try to get to this point of communication without language, you know, without speaking. Right. And uh, and so once I got to college. Uh, I definitely, you know, absorbed anyone that was, you know, um, open-minded and, uh, and, uh, yeah, the first band I think was called the 5,000 Mikes <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we were doing, you know, classic rock covers and a bunch of easy Grateful Dead songs and, and, uh, it's a little, little community on a small campus. Now this is Virginia Wesleyan college on the on the campus or the or the uh the border of like virginia beach and norfolk so and uh it was very small at the time kind of like what we called it uh, a high school with ashtrays basically it was very very small private college with a with a lot of a lot of people you know that live in the virginia beach norfolk area that that code this that go to the college and a very small amount that were were living on campus at the time, but the folks that were living on campus and around campus definitely we uh, created this kind of scene. Um, and and there were a few parties that got quickly shut down. You know, there was some fraternity uh, parties, and uh, <clears throat> and that band I think led into uh, Sweet Feet in the Toe Jam. <laughs> And then that band led into the the, the all natural band, which which actually uh, by 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 the time of the all natural band, you know, I had other friends in other colleges and fraternities, and we were making the rounds at these fraternity parties at places like ECU and uh, uh, UNC Chapel Hill and uh, UVA Virginia Tech. Uh, where else do we? Yeah, um, there's a lot. There's a lot at these crazy fraternities in in uh, in, in Chapel Hill uh, at UNC. They definitely were balls out. But um, um, and then that band kind of that we were playing, you know, around opening for folks, and and everybody had day jobs except for me, and they wanted to really focus on uh, putting all the money we made at the gigs into a record. And I was like, no, nah, uh, and I need to pay rent and 
and uh, you know gas and shit. Right. Let's play, and, man. And so we ended up breaking up, and then I went back to the same places that we were playing, like these little bars and stuff. And I was getting as a solo act the same that we were getting as the band, which you know, as a four piece, if you get you know three hundred, you know, uh, uh, you play for two hundred dollars, you know, it's fifty bucks a man. But that was their budget uh, for an act, so I, I got to go in and collect two hundred dollars, a, a pass go. Right. And <laughs> and so and so from there, so from there, uh, uh, you know, that was kind of like, oh well, shit, you know. And and by this time, I had. I had done, uh, you know, some um, uh, some construction work. You know, there's uh, there's these companies where you can go and and um, and just and just apply and get sent out to these to these construction sites and make minimum wage and and you know I figured out that I could sit on you know I could play solo and make uh, about the same as what I would make you know six hours in a hard hat. Uh, with with boots on in the summer, you know, it's minimum wage at that time was probably I don't know four fifteen or something. Right, right. And um, so that's kind of where it went from there. Was probably I gave up all hope of work in college about ninety three. Yeah, ninety three. When when you were playing, well, first when you were playing in those bands, and then you went back and played solo in those places. Are you playing a lot of dead tunes at that point? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely uh definitely a lot of dead tunes and a lot of my own tunes that I'm I'm working on the 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 my first record which was called Freak and it's kind of a culmination of uh so many songs that I've written, you know, from the age of 17, 18 to the present which with that time was, you know, 22, 23 and also that time totally creating uh you know, trying to uh play the songs that I love and focusing on entertaining myself while at the same time, you know, collecting this little small little group of deadheads that kind of connected with the songs. And, uh, at, at that time too, you know, I was, was working those menial jobs, saving all my money and going and, you know, spending it on like 10 grateful dead shows and then coming back broken. <clears throat> and so by, so by 93, you know, I started really only going, to Deer Creek, um, and possibly like RFK because it was close, uh, or, or Cap Center or whatever. Or sometimes down in down in uh, you know Greensboro. Yeah, uh, man, we were probably and, a lot of the same shows, and we just didn't know it. But but yeah, by '93 though, it was just very very few Grateful Dead shows, and like starting to get into the hundred and you know fifty shows a year around that of playing like every Monday at the same place and every Tuesday at the same, but you drive an hour and you play every Tuesday and, uh, you know, that, that kind of went on for a long time and, and get open for folks on the weekends. And, but that's probably, I'm sure that's where you, you honed your skills, where you really honed your craft and figured out what was going to work for you. Absolutely. And, and, and in those places, these are like corners of bars and restaurants right. and stuff and people weren't paying attention to me. So therefore I did not pay attention to them and just really just focused on playing the music that I wanted to play, whether it be mine or somebody else's. Do you remember the first Grateful Dead song you played mm-hmm. or the first one you learned? Do you remember? Can... Uh, it's probably bird song. Right you know, uh, you know, I would think, uh, you know, I, I would think there was like uh, probably a friend of the devil and and uh, uh, 
Franklin's Tower was probably, you know, those are like the low hanging fruit that you can kind of just like listen to and play along with if you have an understanding of, of you know, simple guitar chords. Uh, but I think Birdsong was probably the one that, uh, you know, I really focused in on and learned the lick. And That's... and I always kind of did it with my own, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I had limitations, you know, uh, and so I always kind of did it to the best I could do it, which was very rarely correct in the sense of how it's how they do it on the record, you know? Yeah, but there is no correct. Well, you know, until you play with one of the members of the Grateful Dead. Right. Then you got to have it down. Then And then there's a correct. Right. right. Fuck. <laughs> Did that happen a few times for you when you were playing with, with Mickey and Billy and stuff? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, never happens when you play with us. You got it down, man. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> okay, so now you're playing there, and you decide you're going to move out to Colorado, and and you go out there as a solo artist, and and you've already told me you were already writing some tunes at that point, getting getting freak ready. So when you got out there, we, how are you getting going? Are you busking, or are you going for the record? To the record companies, what are you doing? Oh God, no, no! I think I had Freak at this time. I moved out at ninety five. In ninety five, and Freak's already released. I think Freak's out. Yeah, and um, oh wait, no, maybe, maybe, yeah, yeah. I think, I think it's out. I think my, uh, I worked a deal with my buddy where he would pay, he would pay for the studio time and and the the whole. Uh, he, he would get me a thousand CDs made, and I would pay him uh, $10 a record for the first 500. So he definitely, that was probably a really good deal. <laughs> that right. I think he made out. Uh, but um, uh, what I was doing was, you know, just really hitting the little bars and restaurants in the ski towns, trying to work the weekly gig um, in Steamboat. I think I was playing this thing place called Slopeside Fridays and Saturday nights, which was pretty great. And you go in there and you have to wait for kind of the tin top in the corner to finish and help bust the table, move the tables. I've been move there, the man. Chairs. Yeah. And then and then bring in my little Ronco on a stick. Yeah. Uh, uh, sound system. And uh, and then I think um, uh, Monday nights were at Mocha Molly's. Tuesday nights was at the Three Amigos. And Wednesday night was at uh, 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 the Gold Pan in Breckenridge, and there was some, you know, it's like two-hour drive, and it was a real hairy uh, drive sometimes during the winter. But you know, with that, I was with all those gigs, I was bringing in at least about three fifty, four hundred. Yeah, I was going to say at that point, you're a working <laughs> musician. I mean, you're you're, you're yeah, working three fifty, four hundred a week, you know, and 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 the rent. Uh, you know, if you go, we went out on a house with like six other people, you know, it's probably like 800 a month plus, you know, utilities and food and stuff. And, uh, so I had about, you know, three, $400 to play with every month that, uh, you know, didn't get saved. Right. <laughs> yeah, there was stuff to buy, man. Things yeah. to do. I get it. Um, yeah. So, so you're a working musician out there at that point and, and you're still yeah. writing your own tunes and you're still playing dead tunes and doing all that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you've covered a lot of other stuff too, but by my count, you've put out something like twenty three or twenty four albums. Mm. That is a crazy amount of music. Um, yeah, and so yeah. so you're writing all the time. Was your writing? Is your writing 
ever influenced by the Grateful Dead? How how does that play in? You know, you're such you have such a passion and a love for the Grateful Dead music. Does that seep into your mindset at all when you're doing your songwriting? Yeah, you know, lately it's been more uh, towards the the comedy aspect uh, of like making myself laugh and trying to come up with hooks that are amusing to me. But yeah, in in the beginning, you know, there was definitely a Robert Hunter esque type of idea flowing. You know, get into, and, and that comes along a lot with Michael Stipe that I was talking about before, where Michael Stipe had this thing where he would put these words together that didn't didn't necessarily mean anything, but they sounded good together, and then you could interpretate your own things. It sounds crazy, but uh, I did a little bit of that, and then. I kind of got into story, you know, a little bit more of a storytelling with the, with a character. And, uh, you know, this, you know, I, I've been married for 22 years. And so there, there's tons and tons of love songs for her in the beginning, you know, uh, on the first couple records. And then, and then we were married for a little bit while longer. And then there's, you know, the songs become, the, or songs become a little more tongue in cheek. Right. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, but the influence uh, of the Grateful Dead, I think, mainly is in my pseudo complete poser solo playing you know where i'm uh, i'll set up a loop and i'll i'll kick back and i'll i'll just like improvise some kind of solo uh just searching for notes and stuff and and i think there's a, a certain phrasing that you know that jerry um that i totally you know just it's kind of ingrained in my soul and uh you know, like, 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 say, say, you know, there's like a Jimi Hendrix solo and he has a, a certain way and there's like an Eric Clapton solo. You can kind of tell, mm, right. obviously, Carlos, you know, Jerry, Jerry's the one that kind of like engraved on my soul. And even though I'm not like getting anywhere near what he did or what dozens of guys around the country can can really capture, you know, that's kind of where the main influence from the Grateful Dead comes from when it comes to my my playing, I think. Well, uh, that's an interesting thing I want to talk to you about because you you primarily play acoustic. I mean, I know you do play some electric, but you know your bag is primarily acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. How much are they able to influence your playing style, even though they're primarily electric players, except for you know the reckoning stuff and and all that. You know, and, and Jerry's earlier more acoustic projects, Olden in the Way, and all that, but. Can their playing style influence you at all since they're primarily on an electric and you're playing acoustic? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like Bob Weir's rhythm playing, you know, is, is very obscure and not normal with variations of chords. And, uh, I definitely get a lot from that, uh, element as well. You know, his rhythm playing, no matter if it's acoustic or electric, you know, I'm listening to the chords and that can go either way. You can go on piano too. It doesn't matter what instrument, as long as you're getting influenced by those those types of chords, no matter what electric or acoustic. I think. Right on. on. And what about with the lead playing? The lead playing, yeah, that's you know, you, um, acoustic or electric. You step on a, a you know a Mutron envelope fil- filter, and it's uh, it's very reminiscent of that, uh, you know, the the wah tone that Jerry would have on something like Estimated or Shakedown. Right. Yeah, you're 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 segueing into all my questions so perfectly, and you don't even know it. <laughs> um, 
But I want to back up for a second, then I want to come back to that. But we were talking sure. about the songwriting and stuff. Um, yeah. Are you are does Hunter or Barlow? Are you more drawn to one or the other? Do you dig both of their song styles? Is there one that really just pulls at your heartstrings? Well, I, I, I think, not to take uh, away from the other one, of course. I mean, they're both. Oh no, no, they're 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 both amazing uh, people. I got I got to hang out with John Barlow a few times, and he's uh, he was he was a really interesting uh, dude that will look you in the eye and and speak you know right to you and through mm-hmm. you sometimes. And uh, I never got to meet Robert Hunter, um, but. Uh, I did uh, reach out to him once after this Billy Kreutzmann article in Relics to where, you know, Billy said uh, in the article, you know, uh, Robert Hunter is sending me these lyrics and, uh, you know, I'm a drummer, man. I don't really know what to do with them. I don't really. <laughs> I remember that. Uh, and uh, and then I wrote to my manager, Nadia Pressure at the time. And uh, and I said, please send this to Robert Hunter's people if you can, if you can find them. Uh, and I said, hello, my name is Keller Williams. I'm blah, blah, blah. I read this article. And I, however, do have plenty of time to interpretate your lyrics into music. And then 24 hours later, he sent me uh, these lyrics uh, that I did record uh, for a song called Hobo Jungle, which comes on the uh, the bass record. Which was out like two, two ten, two thousand eleven, something like that. But it was um, really interesting. It was about you know like <clears throat> um, I don't want to tell you, brother. I don't want to tell you, brother. But you know what your mama does for money. No, I I don't want to be. I ain't trying to be funny. I would tell you what your mama does for money. Mm. You know, uh, like kind of like leaning into that. My mother and my sister and my aunt are all women of the night. Um, and, uh, it was interesting. It was almost like, as if it was like, is this guy really desperate? Is he going to really put this out? And I wasn't desperate, but fuck it was Robert Hunter. So I definitely recorded it and it's kind of tongue in cheek and interesting. And it's called hobo's uh, hobo jungle. But to answer your question, uh, I, uh, you know, I, I was definitely, I think more influenced by Robert Hunter, uh, with uh, the the Jerry side of things, uh, for me was was uh, a little more where I leaned. Uh, just just uh, starting out, at, you know, listening and covering the Grateful Dead. Right on. It's it's interesting you mentioned how quick he got it back to you because I had, I mm-hmm. talked with Baracko, you know, um, Rob Baracko, the keyboard player from our band, and he did a whole album that Hunter wrote a ton of the lyrics for the dragonfly nice. album that he did with Jimmy Herring. And nice. then we had started to try and write some original songs in DSO thought about going that direction. And he mm-hmm. went to Hunter and Hunter said, no, I'm not really into it. And then uh, all of a sudden Rob sent him some music and he said, you know what? This sounds pretty good. And 24 hours later <laughs> had a set of lyrics ready to go. You know, That's great. Once he starts writing, man, it just, it it flows. Yeah, you know, it came out so quick. Um, very, very cool. Uh, you know, you, you talked about equipment. You mentioned the Mutron, which is kind of that quintessential effect for Jerry. Um, not, I don't want to talk about the loop stuff, which is oh so cool. And what I met when I met you, that you were just starting the loop stuff, and mm-hmm. I thought, my God, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard. 
and uh, <laughs> and just watching what you were doing. It was at the Fillmore in Denver when you opened for us in like '99. Mm. Um, mm. But as far as axes, and you mentioned the mutron and other effects. Obviously, the mutron that you use that that's influenced by Jerry. Any other stuff? Acts a particular axe that you just had to have, or an effect that you just have to have because of what you heard with the dead with Jerry and Bob. Well, um, later on, like in the past decade or so, you know, I've definitely gotten into uh, stereo, you know, ping pong delays, you know, definitely kind of using the 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 left right of the of the the house sound system to go you know do a lot of stereo stuff uh and that's not necessarily a grateful dead thing but more of a psychedelic thing uh you get into like the the drum sounds and um i definitely get into some some trippy space like drums you know like like uh over top of a jam or something just to kind of something out of left field that's like in the left side right. and then the, and then something else like some kind of gong in the right side or whatever uh and, um, you know, definitely with the guitar synthesizer, you know, I have this little sensor, you know, it's like the MIDI that Jerry used. I definitely right. was very, uh, you know, face melted, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, 19 years old and, uh, you know, Hampton Coliseum with the warlocks, you know, and you hear this. This is sudden, the greatest thing ever. This is this giant, beautiful flute comes out and, uh, and then the uh, the oboe that he uses it gets way down low into the into like the job of the hut right. uh, sounds <laughs> in the uh, you know bow, 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 bow. it's like the third you know, uh, close encounters the third kind blowing your face you know blowing your hair back and your sunglasses fall off you know I definitely uh, kind of uh, got into that and that was very Jerry influenced for sure I think all of that all, I probably never would have gotten into the guitar synthesizer if if jerry hadn't i mean i, I could be wrong <laughs> um i want to want to change directions a little bit you you know in my mind and so many people you're a chameleon you have so many different groups that you put together in so many different veins funk acoustic bluegrass fusion all these uh, you're always keeping it fresh but one thing i noticed and i'm a big fan and i've seen you in so many different uh lineups Usually, there's a dead tune in there somewhere. Um, hey, yeah, what's up, doggy? Um, I just came in the door. <laughs> but my question is, you know, and I love hearing the different treatments. But when you do that, let's let's. I'm going to use more than a little as an example. Sure. Um, you know, those guys and gals probably have are not familiar with the Grateful Dead at all. Well, they are now. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I know with, with more than a little, I remember seeing like West LA Fadeaway and Franklin's. So when you're working with people like that who don't necessarily know the Grateful Dead's catalog or anything, how do you approach those tunes with them? Do you just give them a recording and say, here, learn this? Or do you not no. let them hear it at all? No, I, I, whenever, I, um, whenever I'm trying to get something together, I always recommend not going – to the original version of a Grateful Dead song. More than likely, I'm changing the key uh, because of my 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 vo my vocal range. Right. Uh, 
And to a lot of traditionalists, you know, that is just taboo and it sounds so different. And I understand, I understand that. But uh, in in my world, you know, I can't really hit those notes. I can go an octave lower and it wouldn't sound right. So I changed the key and I want people to kind of learn, you know, my arrangement in my key and, uh, and not get confused with the original. And, And I say that because it's happened a lot where people show up and they learned the, they just studied the, the the originals, which is really cool, and they got them down. But that's completely different. Right, that's how we, we were going to do it that night. So I'll try to to get ahead of that. And um, so you'll just play play it for them on guitar and say, "This is the tune. This is how it's going to go." Give them a yeah. little a little advice on the feel or the, what you want from the bass line, and then just try and make it work. Yeah, there's a lot. A lot of times, you know, uh, there's these voice memo apps that are just unbelievable. Uh, right now and they sound so good just you put turn your phone around you have this you know there's a voice memo that comes on your phone probably that works great too right but then there's there's other apps you can download for free that kind of analyze the room with your <laughs> with your uh cell phone speaker so these these recordings are pristine and uh, well pristine enough to the point where you can hear everything really cl- crystal clear and get kind of a sense my, my playing uh, is very baseline uh, based. You know, I, I'm right. kind of like playing the baseline and then rolling around the baseline. I've always kind of like wanted to instead of like strummy, strummy, strummy uh, as a, as a solo act. I've always wanted to have that kind of low end and really focus on the baseline, have everything come around. So my voice memos, I think, are are kind of uh, self evident on where the bass line is and kind of the, you know, the rhythm and the groove. And then I'll sing the, uh, the melody. And then the ladies, uh, they'll probably, you know, play off that melody and find, find harmonies that way. And, uh, and that's how we do it. Right on. What about, um, basically the same question, but, um, like with the grateful grass and the grateful gospel lineups, how do you handle it with that? Um, Granted, those well, musicians probably are a little bit more Grateful Dead knowledgeable, obviously. Yeah, well, well, Grateful Grass used to be, you know, every every uh, set is usually with with different people. You know, kind of started out with, you know, I'm on a festival. Who else is on the festival right. playing the same day? Or do you want to do this project? I'll send you these arrangements a month out. You learn it. We we run it, you know, before we go on stage, and and good luck. Right, uh, I love that. But uh, the past couple years, you know, I've been fortunate to do a dozen shows with the String Dusters. You know, uh, uh, I've done a couple shows with uh, um, the Hillbenders out of Missouri. We did a whole year of, of right. Pettygrass, you know, Pettygrass doing all Tom Petty songs done bluegrass with harmonies, and uh, and they they are open minded, and, and they've definitely. Uh, done a few uh grateful grass uh sets with me also uh love cannon uh out of charlottesville i'm actually playing with them um i actually just played with them it's actually this sunday but this is aired later and man that set <laughs> that set was cool that was and, then the, and then the day after that the day after that was uh <laughs> was uh, travis book from the infamous string dusters and andy falco from the string dusters who are doing this little duo thing and uh he was just here in st louis doing a drive-in show andy falco with what what, some other side project of his nice nice yeah well that 
that show the, the next day after Love Can, that was really fantastic. It was in the basement and it worked out great. And we had tons of people watching. Right on. <laughs> I, don't know. I hope. I swear to God, I hope. And I played fantastic. <laughs> oh my God, I was so great. <laughs> right off, man. Well, listen, I can't thank you enough for taking the time with me today. But before I wow. let you go, we got to do a lightning round. All right. Just sure. try, try and answer off the top of your head. Try not to think too much. All right. Uh, big stretch, I know. Um, first Grateful Dead show. 87 or 88. Can't. Can't quite remember. I think it was 87, uh, 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 Cap Center, Landover, Maryland. Spring tour, probably. Um, eh, I know 88 was, was fall tour because yeah. I was at college. I know this is lightning round. Sorry. I, was I know. Me too. That's my bad. I asked the follow up question. Yeah, no. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I think, I think 87 was my first one. Right on. Me too. Um, favorite show. Oh Jesus! Uh, Told you, um, I'm putting you on the spot, pal. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, the, the Warlock shows at the Hamptons uh, are, was was pretty great, and then there's also uh, the Alpine Valley shows uh, on in '89. Yes, uh, but there's there's a few real magic moments at Deer Creek in Noblesville, Indiana, for me. Um, uh, God, there's so many. It's a tough question, I know. Yeah, uh, studio recordings or live recordings. Oh man, that I know. Sucks. You suck. I, I, I rock. Uh, I like. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I'll, I'll I'll go right in the middle, and I'll I'll go all of the beautiful recordings that they've done live that have been mixed. Baracko did the exact same thing. <laughs> he he totally did the same thing. Um, favorite dead album. Oh, uh, reckoning. Yeah. Favorite non dead album. Oh, that's hard. Uh, I'm going to go Ruby Vroom, Soul Coughing. Okay. Favorite color. That's hard. I mean, I'm, that was, I'm not thinking about it. Purple. Mine too. First job. Uh, paper Route. Favorite venue to play. Uh, favorite venue to play. la da dee da do la da dee you can always just go everybody's fallback is red rocks uh-oh. uh-oh something happened something happened i think i'm did i lose you no you're here okay uh yeah red rocks is great red rocks is really really great when if whenever uh, anybody can't think of the answer to that if they played there you can always just fall back on that one yeah yeah mm. red rock red rocks is great i'm gonna go tell your ride um uh town um town park you know the telluride bluegrass where they do the bluegrass festival all right best they they they, they, okay go ahead go ahead no no you tell me talk talk about it's 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 like it's like the biggest room in the world with the canyons as the walls and the and the and it's the roof is open right on by the way ladies and gentlemen welcome to the world's slowest lightning round ever (laughs) um best best city for a day off um New York City. Awesome. Uh, first car. Um, '66 uh, Chevy two. Nice um, book you are reading right now. Uh, Road Atlas by Rand McNally. <laughs> that is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Any magazine subscriptions? Mm. 
we have uh, <clears throat> relics that comes, and uh, there's currently a big fat sweet water. Um, yeah, I'm, I got it too. <laughs> sweet water, you know, catalog with everything that I want. Yeah, uh, st- staring at me at the face. And then they call the the, the rep will call. Hey, do you need anything? Can I help you out? Yeah. And I'm like, well, shit, man, I'm not working right now, so there's really not much yeah. I need. I feel That's bad right. for you. All right, last one. First trip you will take when this madness is over. Oh, uh, we are driving to Colorado uh, as a family. Awesome. Yeah. That, that was like lightning round for turtles, man, and I loved it every second yeah, of it. They, oh. don't call it dope. they don't call it dope for nothing. Man. That's right. Hey, pal, <laughs> always a pleasure, and I really thank you for taking the time and giving me some insight into, into what makes you tick. Oh, my pleasure, Rob. Thanks for being. My pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, Keller Williams. All right. So that brings us to the end of our episode. I would like to thank Pete Lavazzoli and the incomparable Keller Williams for taking the time to be here. And I'd also like to thank my sponsors, Sarno Music Solutions and Blue Jade Audio, The Clean Store, and the Authenticity Academy for all of their support. I'd also like to let you all know that the uh, opening and the segue music you are hearing are remixes of portions of Dark Star Orchestra drum segments that are produced by my drumming partner, Dino English. He's doing some really cool stuff with the remixes and making some nice new tunes out of them. And I'm going to try and change that music up from time to time. The Music Plays the Band is produced by myself and the production and songwriting team Brothers Lazaroff here in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find out more about them at www.brotherslazaroff.com. I would really love to hear any feedback or ideas you have for the podcast, so please feel free to email me at robk at darkstarorchestra.net. And I'd like to make one last reminder to ask you to head over to www.patreon.com forward slash the music plays and become a subscriber to the Music Plays the Band podcast. We have a few different subscription levels for you and a lot of fun things planned as companion content to each episode. I'll be back again next week with episode three featuring Kenny Withrow from Edie Brickell and New Bohemians. Until then, please stay safe, stay healthy, and please stay vigilant. We need to get live music back out there as quickly as possible, and we need everyone's help in making that happen. Thanks for being here. People joining hand in hand while the music plays the band. Look out, setting us on fire. Crazy who's to go in midnight. Balls of lightning roll along. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.